Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. The topics and opinions expressed in the following show are solely those of the hosts and their guests and not those of W4CY Radio, its employees or affiliates. We make no recommendations or endorsements for radio show programs, services, or products mentioned on air or on our web. No liability explicit or implied shall be extended to W4CY Radio or its employees or affiliates. Any questions or comments should be directed to those show hosts. Thank you for choosing W4CY Radio. Hello and welcome to It's Your Voice, the show that hosts enriching conversations in diversity. My name is Bihia Yaksain. I am a core alignment coach, an emotional wisdom training specialist, and a diversity educator. I am really honored to have this platform to use every week to have another enriching conversation that educates me and hopefully others. And I feel like that's one of the greatest ways to learn about what is happening in the world because it can become very overwhelming and confusing. And I want to just mention that if you want to look at the programs I developed that are related to learning to recognize patterns of bias that affect us all negatively, you can go to my website, knowwhatyouwantcoaching.wordpress.com and see some of the classes I offer. And I and know that I tailor to demographics and different organizations and groups. And I'd love to hear from you if you're interested in receiving a training or class um, that I really enjoy facilitating because learning is, um, I think, one of the greatest joys in life. And I wanted to just say that before I introduce my guest, the title of the show is Trauma and Transformation in Iran. And I am so grateful to have been connected to Dr. Nusheen Rajbar, who will um, share a lot of information, not only about what is currently happening with the protests and describe what it's uh, like from her own life experience to live in a society that really devalues a lot of human beings, primarily girls, women, and other minorities, and that's sort of just the, the baseline. Um, I'll just mention that Dr. Nusheen is a, an Iranian American 
and has studied tremendously. She's board certified in three different areas of psychiatry from general psychiatry to child and adolescent to integrative medicine and has devoted a tremendous amount of energy and time to developing programs that train other psychiatrists in an integrative approach to help people that's trauma-informed and culturally appropriate and relevant um, because so many people have so many different needs that need to be met in different ways. And another program that she's developed with colleagues for Farsi-speaking people who have experienced trauma and um, effects of war and so much more. So let me bring Dr. Nusheen on now. Thank you so much for being here. It's an honor to be here. Hello. <laughs> I'm just so uh, impressed and grateful for the little bit I know about the work you do. Just, I mean, looking at your LinkedIn or seeing a brief bio, it's just phenomenal what you have already fit into your lifetime. <laughs> And I just want to ask you to let us know what you would like the listeners and viewers to know about you before we begin, because my introduction was very minimal. <laughs> uh, hello to the to the viewers out there. Um, I think what I want you to know is um, that forty. Five years ago, I grew up in Iran, like many other girls who are growing up there now. Um, and I am an ordinary um, Iranian girl who got to move to America at, you know, when least expected at age 12. And uh, the rest of my life in the U.S. has been trying to figure out who I am and hope and getting all the training and studies and everything else to finally um, have something to offer back to my people. And so what's happening now is both heartbreaking and um, it is like everything that I have been working and training and growing up to be able to do. Um, so that's who I am. <laughs> And you were about two years old when the um, at the beginning of the Islamic Revolution in Iran. Is that right? And so you you were living there for the like the first ten years of that. Exactly. So you were definitely impacted as a female citizen of the country. And I went, I just can only imagine the 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 shock. <laughs> The cultural shock and and can you start by talking about what your process was like in realizing that i mean for me often it takes living and being in another place to see what it was just the conditions in which i was living before can you describe what that was like for you at the age of 12 and onward yeah, exactly what you said is um, for those of us who grow up in societies, places where adverse childhood experiences and traumas are just part of how life is, um, it's almost impossible to recognize that until you actually meet people who didn't have those experiences or you move somewhere and you realize, oh, that's not what happens. Uh, so I grew up um, 
as you mentioned, uh, 1977 was when I was born. And then within two years, the, the whole world changed in, in my environment. Um, and I remember growing up, you know, probably age four, five, six, my aunties and, and grandmas and, and um, uh, female uh, people in my family saying, oh, you know, before 1979, uh, you know, we had these rights or, you know, we could do this or we could do that or we could travel abroad and uh, it didn't take an act of God to, you know, find a visa to get to this place or that place. Um, uh, you know, we were together with, with the boys in co-ed education, you know, and we weren't like all put aside, you know, women here and men there. And so I heard these things growing up. Mm. Um, and then, you know, when I was, um, I guess six, I went to kindergarten and, you know, that's when I had to start wearing the hijab and cover up um, and be, you know, separated into a school where, um, you know, the things we studied as girls were home economics and how to cook and, you know, how to make yogurt, um, which I'm really grateful to have learned. <laughs> um, but, you know, the boys got to learn other things, carpentry and uh, tech stuff and, you know, whatever, but it was completely separated worlds, uh, in addition to having to cover up and, um, and, uh, and then when I was about eight or nine, the Iran Iraq war happened. And so, you know, I remember running into the bomb shelters with my mom and whoever was around mm -hmm. to try to get away from the bombings and, um, and the, you know, they would have the sirens on the radio to alert people that the bombs were near. So, you know, go somewhere safe and um, put these tapes on windows so that when the windows were shattering that you wouldn't get hurt. So that was just life. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't, a, I didn't think it was trauma. Um, I didn't know what to think. <laughs> so, um, so yeah. And, and so when I was 12, I left, um, uh, to live with my father because my mom uh, had cancer and, and was too sick to take care of me or herself. And so I moved to the U.S. to, um, you know, start a whole new life, learn English, try to figure out, you know, how to live in this new society. Um, and, and that's when I started to recognize that, oh, not every child has had um, this same kind of upbringing um, as I had. And so the rest of my life was trying to figure out what's what and, um, and survive it and eventually begin to heal, because it took a long time to get to even that point. Um, so here I am, a little bit on the other side, watching these girls in Iran, you know, fighting for their basic rights to speak up in the street, you know, coming out of the schools and, and, you know, shouting, you know, we want human rights. We and it's like, oh, my goodness, I don't think I had that level of courage and bravery when I was five or six or seven or eight. Like, how is this even possible? So anyway. It is amazing that I, I, the degree of courage is, is just amazing. Yeah, and it must be so um, I was going to say strange for you to just see this happening and 
I can't imagine the stream of thoughts you might have, but I do know that you do not sit idly and think. <laughs> you do. You're a huge doer. And um, I, maybe can you say a little bit more about how girls and women are treated and then lead into the program, you, the, the Farsi speaking program you've developed? Sure. For, yeah. So, you know, I've been away from Iran for 33 years now. So um, I wished I could really tell you, you know, what's happening. But from everything that my relatives and all these 80 or so people I'm helping train there are telling me on a daily basis, um, is that pretty much since 1979, um, there has kind of been ebbs and flows of a super restricted environment, a little bit letting up, you know, letting people play music here and there or, you know, show their hair this much. And then, you know, another government or another um, election would happen and then it'd be a super restrict person again. And then, you know, they would arrest a whole bunch of people and people would try to speak up. So this has kind of been going on for third, for, uh, yeah, 43 years, more or less. Mm. Um, and and then all of a sudden, uh, it's almost as if um, uh, it's the critical mass, you know, finally enough people are fed up and there's enough of a, um, a powerful story that everyone can relate to that um, has led to the current uh, 60, 70 days of now, daily, uh, almost daily protests, um, what the Iranian people want pe the world to call a revolution. Um, and, uh, and they're just fed up. Uh, and, uh, you know, it started as a, um, as an uprising or protest to really speak up about the death of Masa Amini. Uh, Masajina Amini, a mm -hmm. Kurdish indigenous 22-year-old um, girl uh, who was murdered in the hands of the government agents because she was not covering fully. There's a little bit of hair showing. Um, and uh, it made, um, people took photos of her in the ICU when her head had been uh, hit and broken and, and she was in a coma, unconscious, and someone was there to take a photo and share it with the world. And someone else told the story of what happened and et cetera. And, and, and it brought things to awareness that this is not, um, this is not an extreme situation. This is a regular girl with regular dreams with, you know, trying to live a normal life who could be anybody's daughter, anybody's sister, anybody's mother. And, uh, and people started to rise up and, um, and they're really uh, wanting their voices heard, obviously, because that's the only way they're going to succeed in getting some of their human rights back, hopefully all of them. Um, and that brings us to even the children getting out in the streets and, and, and the men supporting the women really for the first time 
because um, before it was uh, the way that, that I hear my relatives, my um, colleagues explain it to me is that <clears throat> the the divisiveness of the government's ways, the, the restrictions, the oppression um, had divided the people. So mm -hmm. they felt like, oh, the men don't understand. The men would say, oh, the women don't understand. The Muslims would say, the Christians don't understand. The Christians would say, the Baha'is don't understand. Uh, the Kurds would say, you know, the, the Tehranis don't understand. And now they're all recognizing that this divisiveness, this um, um, destruction of their society uh, is not who they are, that they're, that they love each other, that they want to hear each other's songs and dreams and stories and support each other, that they're all after the same thing. And, and that's the most beautiful part of this all is like the forgotten narrative that is now being blasted in the streets. And you hear the mosques that, you know, are usually only, uh, uh, sharing the the azan, the the call to prayer, are now you know playing music. <laughs> so wow. it's really a cultural revolution. More you know, more than anything, it's incredible. That is, oh my gosh, when you um, wow, I, I, we'll go back to you in a second. Your programs, but I what came to my mind because I did live in a. Muslim country for just two years when I was a teenager, when you said mosque, I immediately heard Allah Akbar. Um, so we'll talk more about that, but I really wanna make sure we get plenty of time to talk about the amazing program you developed. I mean, just one of them, I know you do more than one program. <laughs> I love that you train other psychiatrists in the integrative medicine and the cultural awareness. Um, so I'd like to give that some airtime too, but I would love to hear, I think there are 80 uh, Iranians and 20 Afghanis in the Farsi speaking training program. Yes. And can you, is that done? Like how do you, does it, is it happening in person with some colleagues or is it all online? Or first of all, how do people even receive the training? <laughs> Yes, great question. So uh, during COVID, <laughs> when the world changed, the, the, the first time the world changed, the last time the world changed, uh, the Center for Mind-Body Medicine, which is the organization nonprofit um, that I work through for this Iran-based work, uh, like many other training programs, switched all of their in-person activities or tried to, to virtual. And that meant that we could have trainings which were before held in some resort or conference center in Chicago or Minnesota. Now we could hold them online and people from all over the world could participate. And so that was uh, March of 2021 when we were able to have a global training. So there are people from South Sudan and India and Ireland mm -hmm and uh, Taiwan and Iran who got to participate. We had some grant funding at the time. And, uh, and that's when the first wave of Farsi speaking individuals, uh, Iran and Afghanistan were able to participate. 
and uh, and I got to do the same training program. I've been uh, helping train psychiatrists and indigenous people and other communities to do it in Farsi for the first time, which for me, it's like, I cannot even, there are no words to describe what it's like to try to do, you know, meditation, inner work, therapy, um, self-growth work in a language other than your mother tongue, yeah. and then have the opportunity to do it in, in your ancestral language. It's like a whole other level of growth, learning. Uh, it's like the neurons in the brain are like talking to each other and they're like, oh, that's what this was really talking about. It's connected to this and this. So anyway, um, so it's been a huge honor for me to practice my Farsi and to get to connect with parts of me that have been hidden, you know, for the most part living in America for all this time. So that's when we had our first uh, cohort of Farsi-speaking individuals who are teachers, community workers, social workers, therapists, doctors, nurses, um, school principals, uh, engineers. <laughs> uh, anyone can go through these trainings, which is one of the beautiful parts of it. Um, and first, they uh, attend a five-day virtual training in which all the focus is their own healing. So they're not getting taught what they're going to do with all the people they're going to help <laughs> tomorrow. But for those five days, it is all about the science and the practice of mind-body medicine and how that can help them try to recreate, to regroup into a whole being, connecting their mind-body emotional processes. So, so they do that for five days um, with 200, 300 other people, <laughs> um, but in small groups of about eight to 10 each with mm -hmm. a, a faculty facilitator like myself. And then once they go through that training, then that's kind of the initial step. Then they can go on to the advanced training, which is also five days and virtual these days. Um, and that teaches them and coaches them how to facilitate this kind of work for other people. Mm -hmm. Then there's a curriculum for um, learning how to do this with adults, another curriculum how to do this with teenagers or children. And, and then each of them, of course, has all these nuances depending on what kind of adults you're working with or you know what are some of their uh, particular needs. Are you working in a clinic and offering the groups there? Are you uh, doing this you know, in a shelter, um, offering groups there? Are you doing it all online? Um, you know, how do you actually facilitate this kind of inner work group process um, with training? And then after that second advanced training is done, also five days, then they get paired with one of the other participants in their community and they start practicing facilitating groups for their neighbors, for their family members, somebody to begin to practice with, and they receive supervision from us. So every week they send notes as to what happened in the group, and then we meet and discuss, you know, what did you notice here? How did you address this? And so over time, it takes about a year or so, they really get good at ah, this is what I need to do here, or this is what is needed. Um, so that's the process. 
Wow, what a what a well-informed, experienced-based model because of not setting people up to have to work as individuals, but with a partner and getting weekly supervision, that makes an enormous amount of difference to be getting feedback and support, like on track, off track, all through this, you know. Um, that's brilliant. And of course, the always brilliant to, <laughs> you can't really help facilitate healing much effectively if you haven't done your own, right? Exactly. And, and I, uh, that's incredible. What an, what an incredible gift to the world. And, um, and the fact that it's a year, it sounds like they have like at least a year of like supportive feedback and supervision we need it. We just think it takes us a long time to cultivate new patterns and those new neural pathways. And so they, then they, they become our, our go-to rather than, you know, uh, so they become our habit. Yeah, exactly. And then even after they're certified, which usually takes about a year or two, um, there are opportunities for leadership training within that country or within that community so that they, you know, 10, 20, 30 of them, uh, become kind of the ambassadors for their own community, for their own culture. And, and so then eventually they can hold their own trainings for many, many more people. But it does take some time to really build a network of people who have done this work on themselves with many, many other different types of people and get to form a team so that they can support all kinds of other possibilities in their community. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Jumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Jumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Well, another um, training that you help facilitate and lead and probably wrote, I was going to ask you, are, are you writing the curriculums? I mean, do you, like, is it a group of people writing the, like tailoring the curriculums for adults versus child versus you know, depending on the context, is that a number of you working together to write the curriculums? Uh, great question. So the Center for Mind-Body Medicine, uh, which is the organization, was uh, initially founded by Dr. James Gordon, um, who is a psychiatrist, <laughs> a mentor, wonderful mentor of mine. And he, um, he helped, he created the curriculum uh, at that time with the best that he knew with the team that he was part of. And then as the work has continued to grow over the last 30 years in different cultures and different countries and after 9-11, after Katrina in Haiti, in Kosovo, in Gaza, uh, the faculty that he has trained, including myself, have continued to be part of the the continued evolution of the organization. So for example, now with our Farsi speaking uh, community uh, of trainees, we needed to not only translate all the materials to Farsi, but also um, figure out the nuances of, of how does this 
uh, need to be tweaked a little bit, or you know, maybe the the poems we use, the music we use, obviously needs to fit that culture. So I get to be creative in bringing the beautiful Persian music or Rumi poetry or whatever into that work, which looks different than what they do in Gaza or what they do with the tribal communities in the U.S. that we work with, um, who bring their own ceremonies and culture and language into the very basic model that um, has stayed the same and is being researched. It's so fantastic how scalable it is and and universal and adaptable depending on where you are, <laughs> depending on the, the social mores and cultural norms. And so I'm curious also how the the training to a psychiatrist in training to help expose them to this just cultural knowledge and learning and openness and stepping out of biases <laughs> um was what i imagine there were a lot of barriers to get that like accepted or like in the, in their curriculum like how, how did that happen i mean that's a wonderful piece of news i wish everybody had that it's not institutionalized in so many places so yes. how, how did that come about <laughs> well uh as usually these things have uh, a life of their own so when i went through medical school and initially family medicine residency and later psychiatry residency um I was very aware of my own disconnect uh, between my culture, my belief system, what I was you know, raised with versus what the, the medical establishment, the um, biomedical model uh, says about mental health, about you know, disease, about diagnoses. Um, not to mention the need for wholeness and self-care and well-being for the physicians and the yeah. fact that we have about 400 physicians a year commit suicide in America. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. I was talking to a group of nurses, speaking of, you know, how complex this is. I was talking to a group of nurses the other day and they reminded me that it's 700 nurses per year that commit suicide. Like who talks about these things? I mean, we need to, but, yeah. but what was happening is I too was experiencing burnout and figuring out like, where's the rest of medicine? Where's the rest of healing fit into, you know, my residency curriculum? What if somebody comes and they don't want the Prozac that I have to offer, or they're not ready for that step? Like, what else can I offer them? And so going through the training myself and seeing all the ways that my own educational and training needs were not met, as well as colleagues and what my patients were asking for eventually led to my training in integrative medicine and then helping create what is now a, an integrative psychiatry curriculum that is not only offered um, at the University of Arizona where I um, teach, but now at six other um, residency programs in the United States and hopefully many more to come. But what it involves is exactly um, 
it includes mind-body medicine. So the residents in our program all get to go through a mind-body medicine skills group themselves when they're Great. fresh in their internship. So they get to connect as a group, they get to build community, and they get to get to know themselves a little better uh, and build skills so that as stress comes and as burnout risks continue that they know that they have some uh, toolkit of how do I uh, work through this. And so uh, the curriculum really has been built now over the past eight years. Um, and it's been an iterative curriculum. So every year we continue to, to build it and shift it based on the feedback and, and what we're finding the residents um, are telling us. Uh, but it's now really a national movement to, um, and it you know suits uh, programs and the world, I think, in many ways, because as you said, the diversity, equity, and inclusion needs of programs of healthcare, of mental health, um, need to be met, you know, those training needs. And so when you have a program that's evidence-based and it helps both for inner knowledge and inner connection for each of the psychiatrists to be, but also exposure to things like Ayurveda and acupuncture and tra Chinese traditional medicine and nutrition, you know, the basic stuff that we should, you know, really all know about, um, then it it switches. It's a cultural shift for them that, yes, I have Prozac and Zoloft and CBT and, you know, whatever therapies that I am taught. And there's this whole world of indigenous wisdom and knowledge and tradition. And, and some of it, we actually have research to back them up. And so I think the doctors need to know that. <laughs> Um, they say this is revolutionary, but really it's good medicine. Um, so that's that's how it's come to be. And I'm delighted because it really fits into what the world needs. Um, and here we are. Oh, I so agree. That, that's just a phenomenal accomplishment. And that's the best kind of knowledge that's, um, I think you said iterative, that's not dogmatic and stuck in 20 years ago or in one paradigm, like that is just brilliant and exactly the medicine I I too believe the world needs. So we will we'll go back to that because um, before we wrap up, I wanna ask you to share your like dream vision, but I have a couple little, I have a follow-up question about something you said previously. And then a, a question about Islamophobia. Actually, I'd love to talk about that with you while we're still here. So one thing, I, th I think I read this in an, uh, an interview of you where you mentioned something that I think is still way under-recognized. And I can't remember exactly how you said it, but the idea of um, in order to end these cycles of violence, um, we definitely, definitely, absolutely cannot skip men. Men need to be, men need to heal their own trauma. That, um, you know, and uh, for a long time I've known because I used to work in the world of domestic violence that, you know, um, violence hits everyone. It goes in all directions. Um, and so I just loved reading your emphasizing that, like, if the, if the people who are trained to be agents of oppression n never have the opportunity to see, see how they're being used and recognize that it's a different form of control over them 
to oppress and um, disregard other human beings is very traumatizing and requires a tremendous amount of like numbing out and ignoring your gut and your heart to be operate as an oppressor in any society. So I'd love you to say, to just share more about how you have like things that have helped men in the, let's say, and I mean, it could be in any community, but in the context of Iran, what have you seen? I mean, and, and there is so, there, we seem to be witnessing so many more men, like you said, on board and like getting like, oh my gosh, of course, if, if my sisters, my mothers, my daughters, my wife's life is better, mine will be better too. That That's just beautiful to see that becoming recognized. But can you share a little bit about what it's like for men or what is effective for men to be able to reach that kind of recognition of how they too are suffering and how they too can be liberated from it. Mm. I'm so glad we're talking about this. Uh, so dear to my heart. So, you know, where I would start is the, the disintegration of the fabric of society, not just in the Middle East, but in many places that as colonialism and uh, oppressive uh, movements have continued through history, uh, everyone has lost and, you know, mm -hmm. corporations have gained, but pretty much the, the planet, the animals, the men, the women, the, uh, the environment have all taken a hit. And, uh, and so that has been the, the disintegration of the divine feminine and the disintegration of the divine masculine. And so what you see, what we see, what I see is toxic masculinity on one end is men who don't know what it's truly like to be men because they haven't had the role models. And then women who don't know how to truly be women because they too have, have suffered. And so, and then the part that you mentioned is that hurt people hurt people. So mm -hmm. pain that is not transformed into growth and wisdom uh, just keeps hurting other people uh, and and there's no end to it. So it's these cycles of violence and cycles of, you know, if this happened to me, then I'm going to do it to this person. And it's not even conscious half the time. It's just mm -hmm. a robotic acting out of our childhood hurts that we didn't even recognize they were hurts, kind of like mine, you know, when you're growing up in it and everyone's feeling that, then you don't even know what's good or what it could be different. And so in Iran, like many other places, uh, the men have been lost in a way, you know, like what does it really mean to be a, a good human being as a man in Iran? I remember growing up, my mom saying, do not ever marry a Persian man, like marry an American, marry a white guy, do not marry an Iranian. And I didn't know what she meant. I mean, I knew there were issues because <laughs> she didn't have, you know, a, a good track record with with her fellow Iranian men. And there are many divorces in my family and other families. But I didn't really know what she was talking about. But when you have a society that is so oppressed where the men lose their sense of 
this is what it really means to be a successful man, not one that is violent and oppressive and controlling of their wife or daughter or sister, uh, but one that is empowered to, to stand up for justice, to fight for when there needs to be a fight, to care, to provide, to support when there needs to be support. Uh, to be honest, to be authentic, to to be allowed to have tears, to be allowed to be human. You know, when those things are lost, then you have a society of addicted individuals who mm-hmm. are numbing, whether it's alcohol or drugs or sex or, you know, whatever the, the drug of the day. Mm-hmm. And then everyone loses out. So then you have domestic violence and then you have... Uh, this like we don't understand each other men come from mars women come from venus whatever (laughs) you know it's like uh that communication that seeing eye to eye that trust is broken and then there's this all this fear of like not understanding the unknown and that separates people and it hurts the men and it hurts the women and particularly it hurts the children because they're watching and seeing oh mom and dad don't get along or my dad yells or my mom doesn't tell him the truth or you know whatever those patterns are that we do um and so here's a chance to shift those so when the men show up in a group with the women and they are uh, practicing these skills and learning these are the ground rules and this is a safe space where you can be yourself you see the tears beginning to roll and you see the 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 anger the the pain the grief um and and then you get to learn from others you're like wow this person it just was able to express something that i've been wanting to express my whole life and so almost that peer pressure of like being authentic allows Mm -hmm. shifts to happen that individual therapy you'd have to do that for years and years to get some Mm -hmm. things to shift but the group format allows for um that learning and um, those mirror neurons, you know, they're watching and seeing, oh, this is a different way I could be a real man, or this is a different way I could be a real woman. I can speak up, I can have opinions, I don't have to hide and, you know, always be the quiet one. Um, And so that's how some of the shift happens and it's beautiful. Oh, wow. I can imagine. Thank you for like, like spelling it out for me. I, that's what I really wanted to hear is the kind of the details of where, how it happens, those moments of transformation. And I, I love that. Um, how did you say it? The, like peer pressure to be authentic. It's, it's so powerful when you have someone be real and vulnerable and, and it's so hard for men to cry no matter what country you live on in general still to this day um but some places it's even more difficult um so to to, for men to see other men doing it even if they're surrounded by women that they can do it and that peer pressure turns into peer support right (laughs) exactly yeah that's a beautiful peer pressure to be authentic Um, i think i will remember that phrase (laughs) Well, I wanted to um, just shift into Islamophobia because, and I feel like this is like a question, a dialogue and a conversation that I will, I could have with many people over time. I don't think there's a like, 
I mean, maybe you have an answer for me right now, <laughs> but I just feel like it takes so long to really um, shift and 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 see things from a different perspective. But and I and I find as someone who's worked in the world of diversity for a really long time in many different contexts and lived in different places, it's just how can we support people in looking at places like Iran, where which you know, or Saudi Arabia or Libya or, you know, primarily predominantly Muslim countries where Islamic law has been enforced or is being enforced in ways that are clearly damaging to huge populations. How can we support true, true believers who are really good human beings who are Muslim and, and in our minds know how to separate that from like, uh, what's called what's called an Islamic revolution, which is actually like you, a term you use, the prostitution of religion. Like, can you speak to that? Because to, I think it's really confusing for like a lot of Americans for like all the propaganda and all the the narrow angles and the view, the viewpoints um, just packed with negative, horrible images of Muslim people, and 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 yet you know I can find myself going, oh, just being furious. At how women are mistreated. Of course, it's not the only rich religion or place in the world that has mistreated and abused. I mean, we can say that about Christianity. We can say that about lots of them, but this is predominantly our, it seems like the, the lens is on, it becomes Islamic. It, it sli quickly slides into Islamophobia. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> this is a, a long conversation, but uh, Big what question. I can what I can say is that uh, the way I see it, the way up until this point in my life, I I can under try to understand the messiness that is religion, including Islam, is that generally when religions first start, they are um, all about love and connection and. Uh, bringing people together and uh, providing instructions and ways to have a healthier society than what was there before. Um, and, and so at some point, because humans have egos and, and we do a good job of dividing things, um, over time, things can disintegrate a little bit. And people who don't necessarily have the best intentions can use what was intended as a medicine as a as a beautiful thing for their own use and benefit to the huge uh, destruction of other people and so as you said it's not new in islam but unfortunately this has happened within the islamic societies many of them and so it makes it really hard for people who um want to stay connected to the to the truth of the beautiful message that it was when it started and it still can be if one can connect to what that true message is mm -hmm. and and separate it from the all of the other stuff you know it's like the 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 lamp the light is is beautiful and clear but then it's like covered by all of this um you know uh darkness in, in, in places like Iran. And religion is a, 
is an easy thing to prostitutionalize, you know, for a government like Iran that, you know, or any of these dictatorships or oppressive governments, they can use religion to try to control people. Um, and and they call it the same thing as the true believers call it. So yeah. to confuse people. Right. So so it's fertile ground for division and wars and trauma and more trauma. Um, and um, and then, you know, what the protests in Iran are happening, you know, are, are trying to ask for basic human rights, but some people who totally miss the boat say, oh, like they're being against Islam and it's completely missing. The, uh, and But that's, I think it's the reminder that the oppressive forces are actually using these notions to try to divide and make people miserable. So, uh, but it takes a lot of um, community connection and speaking up and, and recognizing some of the nuances to not get caught up in the hype that um, that some of the the oppression oppressive forces want there to be to confuse people and um, drive them separate from one another. Wow. <laughs> so well said. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. <laughs> I, I see we only have a couple of minutes left. So I wanted to um, make sure you got a chance um, before you make kind of your closing message. Um, would you like to cite a website or that people, listeners on the, radio or podcast can look up website or contact information. Could you just say that out loud? Yeah, absolutely. So one is uh, the Center for Mind Body Medicine, which is cmbm.org. Uh, and the other one is Cook for Iran. So www.cookforiran.org. Um, and uh, they are partner partnering to help support the program for Farsi speaking people. Fantastic. Thank you. And I, th I probably just gave you one minute <laughs> to say, um, to share. And I, I definitely am going to have you back. So we'll continue. But what is just a, a dream you want to share before we have to wrap up? So my dream is that every little girl, every little boy, uh, wherever they live, anywhere in the planet, can have a healthy role model to look up to that um, models compassion, models healthy boundaries, mod models healthy masculinity, healthy femininity, um, models um, justice and um, authenticity. Because when those early models are uh, created in the brain of the child, mm. uh, the rest of the work for the world will be so much easier. So that's my dream. And this is a triple board certified doctor speaking. <laughs> I really appreciate that. Thank you so much. I also want to thank the listeners and viewers and DJ, our sound engineer, who's always so helpful and our producer dean piper and uh, hope for everyone may we all have enriching conversations and diversity this week thank you in speech, in speech, 
articulate speech, inarticulate speech of the heart. Inarticulate.